I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Uh, we're going to look at a few passages, but we're going to start in Mark 7 uh, and take out your outlines as well. We've started a series that we're calling Apologetics, the big questions, the big questions that people have about Christianity. Last week, we talked about uh, the problem of suffering. If God is a good and powerful God, why does he allow suffering? And this week, we're looking at the reliability of the Bible. And I think we need to begin by saying that we are sinful people, and we cannot believe everything we think. That can be a dangerous thing. That's why we need to stay in the word. And what that leads us to is correct thinking. If you want to think well, you think according to the word of God. Uh, It was John Piper who said, I know of no other way to triumph over sin long term than to gain a distaste for it because of a superior satisfaction in God. And how do we get that superior satisfaction in God? We get it through the word. It's what the Bible calls sanctification. And you've got this on your outline. Sanctification is the process of being made to be like Jesus. The work of sanctification and this superior satisfaction in God happens by the word of God. You know, we think of the... Lord's prayer as uh, repeating our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's really the disciples prayer. That's the prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray. But the high priestly prayer is in John chapter 17. And that's where Jesus prays for his disciples and he prays for us. And he says this, he prays for us, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. And so when we talk about the word being truth, we need to understand that that it's about Jesus and Jesus is the truth. Uh, As Christians, we have to be certain about the Bible. Uh, We'll never get much of anything really settled about questions we have until we settle the question of the reliability of scripture and the authority of scripture. Because our lives are changed to be like Jesus by God's word. Um, And so you've got this on your outline. Our faith grows by God's word. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, now faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you want your faith to grow. Hopefully, that's my prayer. When you come on a Sunday morning, your faith will grow because you're hearing the word of God. But you can't just rely on this. You've got to be doing it on your own. Our usefulness, we all want to be useful for the kingdom. We want to be useful for God in reaching other people. Our usefulness depends, at least to a certain extent, of our knowledge of the word of God. Uh, God has given us his word so that we as workers don't need to be ashamed. Paul writes to Timothy and says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth, which means that we need to be handling the word of truth. We need to be in the word. We need to do it well and do it correctly. Um, 
Another big area that depends on the Bible is, is our assurance of salvation. You can be assured of your salvation, not because of what you think, not because of what you feel, uh, not because of what someone else says, but because of the word of God. Look at, at the, on your outline, you've got 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may hope that you have eternal life. Is that what it says? No, it says to know you have eternal life. We can know we have eternal life based on the word of God. These are things written to us. And if you want the assurance of your salvation to be an exclamation mark and not a question mark, then you need to be certain about the authority of the word of God. There are some people in the world, some non-Christians, who don't read the Bible, don't care to read the Bible, they hate the Bible and all the Bible stands for. There are other people who are non-Christians who don't read the Bible, but they don't really care. They just don't think it's relevant for them or for anybody else. There are other non-Christians who will use the Bible to say whatever they want it to say. They'll twist scripture. Uh, so they're not really studying theology about God. It's more like meology. I want it to be all about me. Maybe the biggest tragedy is to believe that the Bible is the authentic, inspired word of God and not know it and not study it and not memorize it and not meditate on it. May that not be said of us. I like the way John Stott put it. You've got it on your outline. We must allow the word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. And I think the way most non-Christians out there that I encounter would say something like this about the Bible. They would say, you know, the Bible sure has some good things to say, but it's so old. How can you rely on it? <clears throat> it was written, we have, there's so many different translations out there. And much of the Bible is just out of touch with the way things are today. And so it can't be completely authoritative in what it says. Well, the first thing that helps us to recognize the authority of the Bible is to understand what Jesus thought about the Bible. How did Jesus view the scripture? If we're following him, what did he say and what did he do about the scripture? And number one on your outline, Jesus' final authority was based on the Bible. In Mark chapter seven, now we're gonna get to our, our passage, um, Jesus is rebuking the teachers and the scholars. And look at verse eight. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And then just for now, skip down to verse 13. We'll come back to the middle of it in just a bit. But in verse 13, he says, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. So Jesus isn't criticizing traditions in general. There are good traditions. Uh, but rather these particular traditions of the elders and the teachers of the law, uh, they were traditions that had grown up around the Bible, 
but they weren't the Bible. But they were thinking of them like the Bible. They were acting like these people's commands about the Bible were as much as, as authoritative as scripture itself. For example, God commanded us to keep the Sabbath day holy. And yet <clears throat> these teachers of the law came up with dozens and dozens of laws that interpreted that commandment. And those laws were treated as basically equal with what the Bible said. And the problem was they distracted people from the actual original biblical command. The Hebrews were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, but that important truth got lost with all of these rules that they came up with. So now look at verses six and seven of Mark chapter seven. Jesus sums it up by saying this, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus is saying here, stop adding to my word by, with your traditions. And by doing that, you're failing to honor me. You're failing to honor my word, God's word, and the authority of God's word. Think about how often Jesus says, and this is on your outline, it is written. And the answer is 971 times. And that's in the uh, Young's literal translation of the Bible. Every time Jesus says that, you say this, but it is written, he's appealing to the authority of scripture. Jesus lived by that. And that's what we need to live by. For Jesus, it didn't matter what the experts said. It didn't matter what the culture said. It didn't matter what tradition said. It didn't matter what you felt about it. If it was the word of God, then that settled it for Jesus. And so on your outline again, Jesus based his thinking and actions on the Bible. Think about it, how he handled the biggest challenges of his life. When he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness in Matthew 4, what did Jesus do? Over and over again, he quoted scripture. What did Jesus do when he was on the cross, dying on the cross? He quoted scripture. Jesus had memorized God's word. Well, and if Jesus did that, don't you think it's important that we do that? You know, I'll just say personally <clears throat> that the, the number one thing that has helped me and encouraged me more in the Christian life than any other of the disciplines that we might think that help us grow in, in, in faith, and there are many, but the one that has helped me personally the most is scripture memory. Hiding God's word in my heart. And I, I'm no pro at scripture memory. You don't have to be a pro, but you can just take a verse a week. I would, in seminary, I uh, had a friend that I grew up with in Wichita, Kansas. We went to Wheaton College together. We went to Gordon-Conwell Seminary together. And once a week, we would meet during seminary and we would review verses. And I'd give him my four or five little verses on cards to, to review me on and, uh, and he would give me his pocket New Testament, and he'd say, Kenny, why don't you review me on Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8? I'm like, what? And literally, I could give him, I would, I'd say, give me Romans 5, 7, and he'd say, well, the sentence starts in verse 6. Can I start there? I'm like, just give it to me. Come on. 
He was amazing, and he had memorized so much of the New Testament, Romans and all of the Gospel of Matthew and, and Hebrews, and the list goes on. He'd memorized probably, I don't know, three quarters of the New Testament. So there are people that are a lot better than me, but just be like the, like the tortoise and the hare. Just, just plug along at it. Just do a verse a week. It doesn't have to be the whole New Testament in one week. Just do a verse a week or do a chapter. Uh, memorize a chapter. Somebody came up to me after the first service and said, you know, I feel like when I'm memorizing a verse, I get like a thought. But when I memorize a chapter, I get like a thought process. Memorize your favorite chapter in the Bible. Start there. But Jesus quoted scripture. You know, the authority of Jesus and the authority of the Bible stand and fall together. So in terms of how we got the Bible, excuse me, we have some books that were included. They're called canonical. And other books that were not included, that were excluded. So how did that happen? Well, I think, I mean, we could talk about this for a long time. I've sat through hours of lectures on this one topic. But there's a quote that you have on your outline from from F.F. Bruce's book, The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? And he says this, one thing must be emphatically stated. The New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in some canonical list. On the contrary, and you can underline this next phrase in this quote, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired, recognizing their innate worth and general apostolic authority, direct or indirect. In other words, you can't follow Jesus and reject the basis of his whole life that the church has accepted in that, throughout the history of the church. So the next thing you have on your outline is this. You have to submit to the scripture's authority. So here's the question. Are you adjusting your life, this is on your outline, to the authority of scripture, even when you don't want to? Even when, it's, when it contradicts what your heart says. And remember, we can't trust our heart. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We definitely can't trust our own heart. Okay, if you want to turn with me now to Luke chapter 1. We're going to go to Luke chapter 1. The next question is, can we trust the Bible historically? And the answer is number two, the Bible is historically accurate. So let's read Luke Chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord, of, of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So non-Christians today essentially say the Bible and especially the New Testament can't be trusted because we don't really know what the original Jesus was like. There's, how, how do we know things haven't been added on? 
they have the wrong idea that, that non-Christians today have the wrong idea that Jesus' miracle and his resurrection were added later by church leaders who were just trying to consolidate the movement. And so they wanted to attract people to it. We don't really know what happened is what they say, non-Christians today. So the reality is that nothing could be further from the truth. There are some reasons why we can trust what the Bible says about Jesus, and we can trust that it's historically reliable. Look at verse two. What Luke is essentially saying is, I've carefully investigated everything. I've checked out what I've written with eyewitnesses, and those eyewitnesses are still alive. Go and talk to them. Even though he's writing 30 or 40 years after Jesus died, Luke is saying, you know, there are many people who are actually, who actually saw Jesus. And so you can check with them to confirm that what I'm saying is true. And so eyewitness accounts are huge. That's a big deal. The apostle Paul wrote the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, and this was only maybe 20 years after the events of, of Jesus' life, and, 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 and Paul said, hey, Jesus rose from the dead, and he appeared to the 12, and he appeared to over 500 people. And I, I, again, you can go and check with them. They're, they're alive still. And he even says that, Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. Go talk to him. You know, someone could write something that was two or 300 years after the events took place, and you could basically say whatever you want because there's no one there to confirm it or deny it. But you can't have Jesus rise, be crucified on a cross and then rise from the dead, say that happened when there were all these people who, who would say the opposite if the opposite were true. That I never saw Jesus crucified. I saw him die this way or that. Or I, I didn't see him rise from the dead. But there were people that were eyewitnesses to the crucifixion that saw Jesus after he rose from the, <clears throat> excuse, me, excuse me, after he rose from the dead. <clears throat> and if that would have been the case that none of those things really happened, do you think Christianity would have ever gotten off the ground? No way. And so there are some basic historic tests that are important that we can look at. So one of them was, and in one of them, and these are not on your outline, you can just, they kind of go with the outline, but is an internal test. And what I mean by that is that these documents are written too early to be written off as legends that weren't true. Um, one expert in ancient literature wrote this, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends and myths all my life, and I know that they, what they are like, and they are not what, uh, like one of the gospel accounts. They're not legends. That expert in ancient literature was C.S. Lewis, who taught ancient literature at, at Oxford and Cambridge. And what he was saying is that the gospels don't have the form of legends, and they're written too early to be legends. You can trust them that what they say happened really happened. And we can see that you can trust the Bible historically. That's on your outline. You can trust the Bible historically. There are also what we would call a manuscript test, the manuscript test. When it comes to the manuscripts themselves, there's uh, the quantity test. How many manuscripts do we have? Well, this is on your outline. There were 5,800 Greek 
New Testament manuscripts and thousands more, like 20,000 more that are in Latin and other ancient languages. This last week, I sent out an email and I gave in the email about a dozen books, my favorite books on this subject of apologetics. And I challenge you to buy one of them and read one of them during these weeks that we're talking about uh, how we defend our faith, how we come to better understand our faith. One of the books on that list was a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. It's actually been rewritten and improved on. He wrote, did that with his son, Sean. So now there are two authors to the book. But he says in that uh, book, he points out that there are seven manuscripts only of Plato's Republic. And the earliest manuscript we have was about 1,200 years after Plato lived. Do we ever question that Plato's Republic was really written by Plato? Maybe we should. But compare that with what we've just been talking about, about the New Testament. 5,800 Greek New Testament manuscripts. And then Josh McDowell and Sean in this book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, talk about a third test, the unity test. And here's what they say, the quotes on your outline. The unity of the Bible is another fact that points to the Bible being inspired by God. The Bible was written over a 1,500 year period by 40 different authors from all walks of life, including kings and peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, scholars, etc. The Bible was written in different places, a wilderness, a dungeon, a palace. It was written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, and in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And then we must add to these facts the idea that the Bible discusses hundreds of controversial subjects, yet throughout the Bible, these subjects are handled with great harmony and unity. How would you ever explain the Bible being written unless it was not from divine inspiration? It's the divine inspiration of God that is behind the Bible. Think of a call uh, by somebody in Washington, D.C. They send out a a request to every governor. And they say, we want to build a monument. We have something very specific in mind to all 50 states. So we want you to send some rock that represents your state. And so they might get granite from Georgia or they might get uh, flint from Kansas or coral from Florida. And people all send it. And, And then they begin to assemble it together. And it fits in perfect harmony. And from the end to the beginning, this beautifully shaped memorial. And not one stone has to be shaved down or reshaped in any way. You think, that's impossible. That would never happen. Well, the only answer is that there would be a master architect behind all of it who would design the whole thing. And that's one of the reasons that we can believe the Bible is the word of God because of this unity test. And then a fourth test is the test of archeology. span And again, we could talk about this one for weeks on end, but I think the best summary quote that I could find was by Nelson Gluck, who was a famous Jewish archeologist who said this, you've got the quote on your outline. It may be stated categorically 
that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a biblical reference. That's pretty amazing. And so you've got on your outline, archaeologists continue to be surprised by the accuracy of the Bible. Archaeologist Joel Kramer, who we've heard speak to us a couple of times uh, in recent years, uh, likes to talk about archaeology like being like, the, like a, a, a puzzle, that you're fitting all the pieces together. And think of looking on the book, uh, on the top of the, the box of, of the puzzle, you see the picture that's, that's being uh, put together. And you look back at the picture and say, oh, this piece must fit here. Well, the, think of the Bible as the picture on the top, on the cover of a puzzle box. And if there's a piece that doesn't fit or that we don't have, we think, well, how can we find that piece? And so we start reading the Bible and say, oh, okay, there must be a gate over here if what the Bible says is true. And so they start digging and they find a gate. And Joel Kramer says that happens over and over again. And so do the, do the people and the places and the events mentioned in the Bible coincide with the rest of what we know of, of, from other documents and other information about the same people and places and events? And the answer is a resounding yes. And so those are things that, we can, that we've touched on. They're kind of in summary form. But the, what these point to and what we need to keep in mind is point three on your outline, and that is the goal of the Bible is to fall in love with Jesus. So if you want to turn to Luke 24, we're going to look at Luke 24. But before that, let me just say this. How does obeying the commands of the Bible lead me into a personal relationship with God? Think about it like this. If you're falling in love with someone, you begin to do a little research. You find out what that person loves and what that person hates. And you avoid at all costs doing things that they might hate. And you do things, on the contrary, that you know they'll love. And you can't have a love relationship with someone if you're constantly offending them. And at the same time, you learn to do what they love to do. It's both and. You can't just avoid what they hate. You can't just focus on what they love. Um, you also have to strive to make them happy. And, 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 and you're, you're not just trying to not offend them. You're trying to impress them. And it doesn't feel like a burden when you do that because you're putting your happiness into theirs. You can only be happy if they're happy. So think about it on the other side of marriage. Been married to someone for a long time and there are lots of marriages, unfortunately, that are one-sided. And all the spouse can say is, yes, dear, yes, dear. And they can never disagree with their spouse. That's not a personal relationship. That's an authoritarian, oppressive relationship. The person is afraid to be honest. That person has become an object because it's not a relationship. So there's only one way to have a personal relationship with God, and that is you have to have a God who can contradict what you say, even if it's a deep conviction you hold in your heart. Remember, we can't trust our hearts. We can't trust our minds. We are sinful to the core of our being. And so the way to have this kind of relationship with God a personal relationship is not to say, well, I want a personal relationship 
with God, but there are parts of the Bible I just can't accept. I'm, I'm just going to ignore a lot of what I don't like in the Bible. I'm just going to accept what, what I want to accept. You're treating God as a robot in that case, as an object. At one point, Job is telling God he doesn't like all the suffering he's going through. And you remember God's response to him in Job 38? At one point, God says to Job, where were you when I, had, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Okay, I can't tell you anything. I wasn't there. And God's saying, okay, let me be God. That means I'm going to disagree with some things that, are, that you think. You know, there, I, I, and, and when we, maybe there are things in the Bible that, that we don't obey because they're hard. And maybe there are things we don't obey in the Bible because, or we don't believe in the Bible because they're, we think they're too good to be true. And so you've got this on your outline. Unless you have a God who can contradict you, he's not a person, he's an object. So there may be times when you feel like a failure. And you go to God's word and God says to you, you know what, in spite of your failures, I love you. You're mine. And you might be tempted to say, you know what, there's no way. That's impossible. Not after what I've done. Can you love me unconditionally? Can you accept me into heaven? The only way to have a personal relationship with God is to to obey him all the time, to accept everything he says. And if you can accept the hard things, then it comes to something like his deep love for you and joy in you, then you can say, wow, thank you, God. There's a relationship there because you bow to the authority of God's word. The Bible moves us to love God radically and to love people radically. So look at at, at Luke 24, starting at verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And they talked and discussed these things with each other. Jesus himself, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Loaded question. He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village in which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And then look at verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Man, think about being one of those guys and and going through that. What was Jesus trying to get these two disciples to do? He's trying to get them to read the Bible and to see that it's all about him. So what's the secret to reading the Bible? You've got this on your your outline. You have to see there's one plot line that runs from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. That's the unity of the Bible that we're talking about. And unless you see that, you'll miss what's most important. And instead of being a joy, the word of God will be a burden. You know, I remember a friend of mine about, I don't know, three or four weeks before I became a Christian. Uh, he was not a Christian either, but he said he was reading the Bible. And I was like, that sounds like a good religious thing to do. I should read the Bible. And so I started reading the Bible. And it was like, I, it was like a different language. I couldn't understand anything I was reading. And then a month later, I pick up the Bible again. I'm a brand new Christian and I'm going, wow, this is going to be hard because I tried this before. It wasn't, didn't, didn't go so well. And so I started in a gospel, and man, it was like every word came alive to me. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit is living inside of me, the same God that inspired the Bible to be written, and now I've got the Holy Spirit to guide me, and, and, and my eyes were opened to see. And so the way we read the Bible is to see that it's all about Jesus, He is the ultimate Abraham. He is the ultimate Joseph. He's the ultimate Moses. He's the ultimate rock of Moses. He's the ultimate Passover lamb. Jesus is the ultimate Esther. He's the ultimate prophet. He's the ultimate priest. He's the ultimate king. We see Jesus all through the Bible. And so I bend my will to God's will that's revealed in his word. I might not want to forgive someone because it's kind of nice to be unforgiving and to make somebody suffer. But the Bible doesn't give me that option. It says that we're we're to forgive. And so I bow my will and I'm obedient to God. It's John 1.1 that says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh, it says a little bit later in John 1. You know, I mentioned this earlier, to have a real relationship with someone, you have to, to, you have to d- defer to them. And so a natural question is, how does Jesus defer to us? Well, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. He was in the garden. 
And he said, you know, Father, if there's any other way to do this, I don't want to go to the cross. And the answer was, there is no other way. This is the only way. So how did he defer to us? He went to the cross. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Help us to be students of the word. May all of us right now in our heart just determine to spend time in your word, to join a Bible study, to be a part of a a group that discusses your word and reads your word. That we would have a renewed commitment to that this morning. We pray that you would help us to receive your word as a joy and a gift. That we would have eyes to see clearly that Jesus is the center of all of the accounts in the Bible. That they're all ultimately about him. And may your word dwell richly in our lives. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.